Hey folks, Preet here. Today I'm excited to share the latest episode of the Cyberspace Podcast in its entirety, featuring Secret Service Director James Murray in conversation with host John Carlin. They discuss Murray's path to government service, recent efforts to make the Secret Service better enabled to prevent cyber misconduct, and the mission of the Secret Service since its creation in 1865. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Cyberspace and other exclusive CAFE content, head to cafe.com insider and use the promo code CARLIN for a limited time special deal on a CAFE Insider membership. From CAFE, welcome to Cyberspace. I'm your host, John Carlin. Every other Friday, I explore issues at the intersection of tech, law, and policy with guests who've made an impact in the world of cybersecurity. My guest this week is James Murray. In 2019, he became the 26th director of the U.S. Secret Service. Beyond protecting the president and other high-ranking officials, the Secret Service plays a vital role in investigating crimes against the financial infrastructure of the United States. As its leader, Murray is no stranger to the cyber threat. He began his Secret Service career in 1995 as a special agent in New York field office where he conducted cyber-enabled financial crimes investigations. Great to have you here this afternoon. And I thought we'd start a little bit about how you got into government service in the first place. Why did you join the Secret Service? Did you join the Secret Service originally? Come from a law enforcement family. My dad was a state trooper in New Jersey. Uh, he'd served in the military. So as a young kid growing up, I, I really had the idea of kind of being of service in some way, like the idea of the military, like the idea of going into law enforcement. Uh, when I was in college, I was in ROTC and was fortunate enough to get a scholarship, was commissioned in the Army afterwards, spent some time in the reserves, and uh, was looking for, I guess, my my federal law enforcement or state law enforcement dream job. I found a job out of college uh, as an investigator with a smaller federal agency and did that for a number of, the, a number of years uh, while I was an applicant with the Secret Service. Uh, nowadays, I'm happy to report our applicant process is probably months long, but I waited uh, more than three years to get hired with the Secret Service, and I came on in 1995. Boy, you know some director guy now who could cut the time down from three years? We, we've done that, <laughs> yeah. If I've, if I've accomplished nothing else, that we've achieved. That's right. <laughs> I remember reading somewhere else that you joined at a time where there were there were budget cuts and you thought you were going to go overseas. That's that's correct. Yeah. So back then, and I think still now, if you have an ROTC scholarship or obviously a little bit different experience, but if you're a service academy grad, you know, they pay for your education and in return for the service you're going to afford, whichever branch of service it is. And so I had expectations of doing uh, four years active. But back then, this is around 1990 or so there was this act in Congress called the Graham-Rudman Bill, and it was intended to cut down on military spending. And one congressman or the other would get up there and he or she would hold up a toilet seat and say, the American people are paying $400 for this toilet seat. And they'll hold up a hammer and saying, they're paying $500 for this hammer. And I guess the way they decided to do it is they started a, re a reduction in force and they started uh, you know, with people already in the military and it actually matriculated all the way down to those of us that were cadets. So I was once intended to go uh, overseas in active duty and instead I got a reserve commission, which meant I went into the Army Reserves. Disappointing, but not a bad thing. But it was also right around that same time that our country got involved with Desert Shield and then Desert Storm. So I did a number of time, a number of months, uh, different overseas duty tours uh, over the course of my time uh, with my former agency. Uh, when I came on to the Secret Service back then, and I'm really glad to report this is different now, but back then you could not be an active member 
of the uh, military reserves. Oh, really? Yeah, back then it was, it was something called accepted service. So you, I didn't have to resign my commission, but I had to basically sign a piece of paper basically saying that, you know, I was in the accepted service and DOD would need to recognize that. And, you know, unless Mars invaded, uh, they wouldn't need to, <laughs> you know, I, I joke, it's kind of like the old Magnum PI thing, you know, Magnum PI wears the Hawaiian shirt and the, and the tiger's hat, but in his closet is a Navy uniform in case, you know, he ever needs it. So, but after 9-11, a number of our employees, uh, mission support folks, special agents, our uniform division police officers, they all raised concerns that, hey, you know, we want to go and serve our country uh, in a different way. And we found avenues to do that. So happy to report there's a lot of folks within the Secret Service that are active members of the Army, Air Force, you know, Navy Reserves and the National Air Guard. That's great to hear. I got to give the quick shout out to my brother-in-law, who is also the son of a New Jersey state trooper and also went into the military, but he did Navy. So you guys can fight about that later. You end up joining the Secret Service. You know, folks have one conception of the Secret Service. When you first joined, what did you think it meant to join the Secret Service? Well, um, I was aware of the dual mission of the Secret Service, of the investigation and the protection uh, mission mandates. And that's actually what kind of lured me in. But I think, you know, back then, as I do now, I'm, I'm pretty much, we're, we're honest about the fact that if you asked, you know, nine out of 10 doctors, they're going to tell you that we know Secret Service does protection, <laughs> even though we started out as an investigative agency many, many, many years ago. But I did know coming in that we had this dual, this dual mission. And that's what really lured me in and drew me to this agency as opposed to other great agencies that are out there. Yeah. And, and why'd you like the dual mission? I think it's a little bit of, uh, I won't say ADD, but, you know, have an ants in my pants. I like the idea of doing a number of different things. You don't get, you never really do the same thing day to day here in the Secret Service, especially as a newer agent. And you come on and you're an investigator for sure, uh, but you're doing a whole bunch of different types of things. So you're doing your primary investigative assignment. You're always catching a protection assignment here and there. You're also supporting the, re the recruiting and the hiring efforts by doing background investigations. You know, one of the one of the things they would tell you back then when you're an applicant is you could come into work in a suit and, you know, stand post for the visit of a president and later on the day, put on a pair of jeans and be, you know, diving through dumpsters looking for, looking for evidence. And, and that could, that's not really too atypical. That kind of stuff really does happen here in the service. From suit to trash. Uh, so you've had that type of day, huh? And uh, I could tell from your voice, which uh, that that you preferred going through the trash than being in the suit. Am I reading that wrong? No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I read a little bit too that you worked with the FBI. You were on the Joint Terrorism Task Force for a period of time. Tell me about that. Yeah. So when I, when I came on in '95, uh, went through the academy, started in our New York field office, which back then was actually when I first started, it was in Six World Trade. And then by the time I got out of school, it was actually in Seven World Trade Center. That's where I did all my time in New York. And you start back then, you would start out in sort of, we used to call it like the, the, the baby squad. It was a, a general crimes or a treasury trek uh, fraud squad that we worked in. You would do that for a while to make sure you can kind of, you know, dot your eyes and, and all that. And then you'd move on to another uh, squad. And the next squad I went to was a task force that specialized in a particular kind of fraud that emanated from uh, the Asian and African continents. And I did that for a couple of years. But the opportunity arose sometime around, I guess, 97, 98 to go over to the FBI NYPD Joint Terrorism Task Force, which at that time there were uh, several uh, in the country, but New York's was the original one going back about five or six years. And I was assigned over there for a good amount of time as the only Secret Service agent on that task force. I, I would venture a guess today that New York probably has, you know, maybe not quite a dozen, but close to it. But I served on a squad and 
and that squad, I had not only FBI agents as partners, but, uh, well, New York State Troopers, obviously NYPD, ATF, the list goes on and on. Uh, fantastic assignment, really got into some things I never thought I would be exposed to in the Secret Service, uh, really opened my eyes to the broader law enforcement community. Really enjoyed my time there, but if I'm being candid with you, John, it also convinced me that I was in the right place, that the Secret Service was the right fit for me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, let me ask about that a little bit. It has been occasionally discussed that there's some type of rivalry every once in a while between law enforcement agencies and particularly Secret Service and FBI. What was it like being the sole Secret Service guy on a task force? It has a lot of other agencies, as you say, but it's led by the Bureau. The first eight FBI agents back about 100 plus years ago actually came over from the Secret Service. And so uh, we've had this bond or this connection going back over 100 years. I say it's a, it's a sibling-like bond, but much like siblings, we do tend to quibble once in a while. Uh, but we have a great relationship, really enjoy working with them. You know, I don't know if there's really, it's a clean analogy, but it's, I don't know if it's, you know, offense and defense on football or their offense and defense and we're special teams, but really, really enjoy working with them. I always have. I did notice you, you did manage to fit in there, though, that Secret Service was first. We were first. <laughs> and then the FBI came, came along. We're still trying to catch up, right? That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so did you want to go over to the Joint Terrorism Task Force or uh, and work with them, or or you just were assigned? I did, I did. A name you'll know, uh, the, the very first Secret Service agent to serve on a Joint Terrorism Task Force was a guy named Brian Parr. Uh, oh, yeah. who you serve with. And he worked on uh, some really, really high profile cases over there in the early 90s, one of them being the Manila Air Conspiracy. He kind of ruined it for all of us because he was so good. Uh, we had really big shoes to fill going over. So they had the bureau leadership there and our partners. They certainly had high expectations of us, but uh, they really did treat us well. I actually worked uh, the special agent in charge. We call them SAICs here in the Secret Service. They call them SACs here. The SAC that I worked for was a gentleman named John O'Neill who is a bit of a legend in, in, in not only the FBI, but then he retired in 2001 and uh, took a job over at, I think it was Silverman Properties at the World Trade Center. And uh, sadly, he, he, he died uh, in September of 2001. But very, very nice man and a Jersey guy like myself. And he, he, was, he was the real deal. So fortunate to work with him and, and, uh, and for all those folks over there. Well, is that your first big? I know you had an experience there preparing for Y2K, which was this concern heading into. Yeah, tell us a little about that. So the, the squad I was primarily assigned to was a domestic terrorism squad, as opposed to some other squads that existed. One of them was, uh, we referred to it as the UBL squad. And back in the late 90s, I'm not saying nobody cared, but not very many people understood what the UBL squad was all about. Obviously, the whole world would come to know what UBL meant. But we were the DT squad and we were the response squad. So if something happened you know, in and around the, the metro New York area, uh, we'd be the ones to go out there and kind of assess what it is. And in addition to that, this was the same squad that carried uh, the TWA 800 event, you'll remember from the mid-90s. So kind of a broad spectrum of things they would do. But uh, one of the things we were assigned with was this lead up back in 98, 99 to Y2K, which as many of your listeners will recall, we thought the world was going to spin off its access at uh, January, you know, January 1st, uh, stroke of midnight on the year 2000. It was, it was interesting, obviously very different in terms of, uh, you know, digital awareness and, 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 and the consequence of kind of not being prepared for it. But of course, you know, happily, none of those fears were ever realized. In part, though, because of actions people took, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Tell us a little bit, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a unique spot, right, in, in Secret Service and the culture there to be put on the Presidential Protective Division and to be on the, the PPD and that 
Does that happen for you before or after September 11th? Before. So typical career track here for an agent is he or she will come on, start in one way, but I have about 160 offices worldwide. You don't start overseas, however. So you'll start somewhere here, usually in the lower 48. You'll do a lot of those primary investigator things. And then you'll also pick up a lot of protection. It's, it's kind of like going to high school. You start as a freshman, you do freshman-like things. As a sophomore, you pick up more and more experience and exposure. And by the time you're a senior, you're a big person on campus there and you're getting ready for phase two. Well, phase two for us is not college. College, it's uh, usually a phase two uh, assignment here as part of your career. And most of the phase two assignments reside down here in the national capital region. Uh, some of the, the more notable ones are the Presidential Protective Division, or PPD as we call it, VPD, which is the Vice President's Detail, our Intelligence Division. If you are tactically inclined, and I'm not, uh, you can go to uh, our Special Operations Division and do SWAT-like stuff. And there's a few other things you could do. So when they pulled my number up there in New York, uh, I actually wanted to go to the former President Bush 41 detail and kind of lived the high life between Houston and Cunabungport. And uh, they laughed at me and I, I was lucky enough to get picked up to go to uh, the president's detail. But uh, th if I'm being honest, my first choice actually was the vice president's detail. At the time, it was uh, Vice President Gore and became Vice President Cheney. But just because of needs of the service, as we say around here, I wound up going to PPD and you know, all things happened for a reason. I was very, very happy with that. Why is that, though? Why would anyone want to be, um, you know, I have, I have the movie version that the, the place to be is to be on the president's detail. Why would you pre prefer to be on the, on the vice president's detail? A lot of the really, really good guys out of the New York field office were going down to the vice president's detail. Uh, at the time, you could kind of get in and out of the VPD uh, quicker. In other words, you can go in like, you know, and do less than four years and pop smoke, as we say, and, and go back to home to New Jersey or New York, whereas on PPD, you owed five plus years. PPD was and still is more expansive in terms of manpower. So I won't say big fish, little pond, but on VP, you get more experience and more exposure and you're afforded, you know, to kind of show your wares earlier on in that experience than you might be able to over in PPD. So those are the things that that drew me over, drew, you know, drew me to raise my hand for the VP, but very glad it worked out for PPD for me. Interesting. People don't realize, right, what an impact it has on on your family. So you, you were hitting it kind of in passing, but this idea that when you're on a protective detail, you go wherever your protectee does versus being assigned to an office. Absolutely. Yeah. The travel, I mean, the best way to describe it is excessive. Uh, and that's regardless of who, who's in office or what administration it is, because it's not simply traveling with that protected person, protectee as we call them. It's actually going out and doing the advance work in terms of you know, being ready for a visit that might take place anywhere in the world. So there's a lot of that, a lot of collateral assignments you pick up just supporting other small details. A lot of travel I spent between, I think, the end of 2000 to very, very early on in 2007, I was on the, on the president's detail. So most of that was President Bush 43. But there was a point in 2005 where I was a, a big boy, so to speak, on the detail. And I was doing a lot of those complex advances. And at the end of that year, I just happened to get promoted to a, a supervisory role. And I walked into our pantry. My wife and I had two kids then, very small. And she had a, a calendar on the wall and a whole bunch of symbols and, and numbers. And I didn't really understand that at the bottom, it was a number like 245. And I, I asked her, I said, what, what does this mean? And she said, you can't figure it out. And I couldn't. She said, that's the number of nights you were away this year. And the year wasn't even over yet. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, you, you got to want to do it. I'll, I'll say that up front. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, know the Secret Service through that protective mission. And we've talked a little bit about it already. But 
why isn't just a protective mission? You know, why do you do things like in investigations? We actually began as an investigative agency way back in 1865, actually. And the, the legend is that uh, on April 14th, 1865, President Lincoln's last official act was to authorize the creation of the Secret Service. Obviously, very sad to note that uh, he would go on to Ford's Theater and be assassinated uh, that same day. But uh, his decision had nothing at all to do with uh, protection of people or places or things. And he was trying to address a different kind of threat that was facing our country, and it was a threat against our financial system, and specifically it had to do with counterfeit currency. So that's the reason the service was created. And for about four decades, not only were we exclusively an investigative outfit, we were one of the only federal investigative outfits. So we wound up picking up a lot of different things uh, along the way. And it wouldn't be until after the McKinley assassination in 1901, when we would then be mandated to also pick up protection as well. Did that for a number of years with all those other things. And at some point, one of my predecessors went with one of his colleagues from the Department of Justice, went and spoke to President Teddy Roosevelt and said, hey, listen, uh, the service is just too small of an outfit to do all these things. If you want uh, a bureau that does nothing but conduct investigations, then perhaps you should establish one federally. And that led to the creation of the FBI not long after that. And again, uh, eight of the earliest FBI agents actually came over. They were Secret Service operatives, as they were called. But since that time, we've had this dual mission of, of a protection investigation. Obviously, both of those have grown exponentially. Um, from our standpoint, they are really symbiotic in nature. We feel that a good investigative agent makes for a good protective agent, and there's sort of a complementary nature to those things. And uh, over the course of your career, you kind of weave back and forth between, you know, primarily being an investigator to a protection agent and so on. Where were you guys originally housed in what department? Yes, yeah, so about, for about 140 years or so, we were actually part of the Treasury which I guess makes sense since we were established to protect the country's financial system. But then in 2003 or so, uh, we were sent over along with the Coast Guard and a couple of other agencies that were blended in order to stand up the Department of Homeland Security. So we've been there for about 17 years now. And let me dig back. I mean, that was part of a reform that grew out of the events of September 11th. On September 11th, where were you? I was at the White House. Yeah, so, and what was it like going through the experience of September 11th from the perspective of being on the protective detail? Surreal, obviously, like the, for the rest of the world, but it was it was interesting. I was at the White House uh, getting ready to what we call a, a work, a makeup shift, because as, as, as we all know, the, the president was out of town down in Florida at the time, and he was expected back later that day. And then we kind of got a sense, you know, through the old Skytel pagers, to tell you the truth, as to what was going on. And I can tell you this, John, I never really thought that I would hear or have to shout the phrase, drop your heels and run. But that's what we heard mostly as we were trying to figure out what was going on with aircraft coming into the national capital region and specifically towards the area of the White House, the Capitol and what have you. Drop your heels and run. That's not a code phrase. Uh, no, no, it's not. No, it was, it was, <laughs> it was encouraged the people who were in heels to, to not be in heels and just get off the property as quick as they could. And uh, yeah, that must have been. And so when you say the Skytel pagers, was there was there a particular page? code back when people were using pagers to, to say that it was an emergency or? I think we were just directed, you know, via via text message on the SkyTel to report to a certain location. And that, that's that's what I recall vividly. Uh, you know, it's, it was a it was a wild day. Uh, I was myself, another agent who came in from uh, the area we live out here in the area. And we were sent home probably midday. I think I drove him to his house and then drove back to my house. This is before cell phones. And when I walked into my home, 
my hardline phone was ringing and it was him saying, hey, we just got a call. We got to go back in. Interesting note, when you're in the field office, a lot of times agents have take-home cars just so they go do their field work. When you report to your phase two, PPD, VPD, and so on. You don't because you're technically not on response anymore. Uh, so you drive your private, you know, privately owned vehicles, your own your own car. So it was kind of interesting trying to drive our 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 POV as we call them back into the district when everybody was trying to flood the district. So something I'll never forget uh, as long as I'm on this earth. And then went back in and uh, I. I hope I'm not embellishing, but I, I've told people I don't think we went home for probably another you know 40 plus hours after that, just trying to figure out what came next. Yeah, I'm sure. And how did you get back into the city? Were you, did you, were you just flashing the badge? I, I think it's beyond the statute of limitations. So my dad, when he was detective with the uh, New Jersey State Police, had an old Kojak uh, Red Ball light. You remember those? He used to go on top of the car. My partner, a guy named Danny Schott, uh, was, he was driving a GMC Jimmy, and we, I just grabbed that Kojak red ball out of my garage and we put that on didn't have a siren and <laughs> just rolled in yeah it was it was wild i don't get dan in trouble but we, we may have driven on the sidewalk we may not have just to get through the crowds just so people are following that so you did because it was your it was your pov it was your personal vehicle so you didn't have a, a siren but you happened to have your dad's back from when he was a state trooper just the light just the red ball just light, light. <laughs> that goes on top yeah yeah it's, like, it's, it's magnetic it's i don't know i wouldn't say it's round it's sort of I don't know. It's a strange, uh, strange shaped uh, light, and it's a very slow light that kind of just goes around in a circle. It's not, it's not too intimidating or impressive, but that's what we use that day. Yeah, yeah. So we've come a long way, I guess, in terms of thinking about how to respond and and how to get people back back to work. I know that was one of the things when I was at the bureau. It's it's those those nuts and bolts details that that people don't think about when they're doing resilience planning, right? At that point in time, so you're at Secret Service during the move from treasury to homeland. And I imagine there were, you know, at the, at the line level, they're mixed. It's a big deal to move from a department and to move to, to a new department. What was it like doing the transition? It was, I mean, it was, it was bittersweet in a way, you know, I'd only been with the agency for about seven or eight years at that point. But of course, a lot of the, uh, the folks that work with me, uh, the mission support folks, the uniform division, police officers and the agents had been with the agency for a couple decades then. So it was, it was part of who they were being that it was bittersweet. We certainly had high hopes for what might come down the road for us with DHS. It didn't really upset the apple cart too much for those of us like me who were working agents. I know from talking to some of my predecessors who sat where I'm at right now, they, you know, it, it was a bit of a learn for them, but it didn't have a whole lot of impact on the rank, rank and file, basically being able to stay intact and keep our dual mission uh, as we moved over to DHS. And as you, as you move, have there been any fundamental shifts in the way the Secret Service does business that came with the move or post September 11th? It's still around protection and investigations. Yeah, I don't know about any shifts. I think we've really evolved and we've tried to do our best to kind of grow capitalize on lessons learned and stay up to speed with emerging technologies and, you know, and emerging threats. And uh, that's both on the protective side of the house and on the investigative side of the house, in particular when it comes to, you know, the cyber domain. But no, no real, you know, there were no guardrails as to what we could and couldn't do once we arrived at DHS. What's the role now, since you guys first got started and were the, uh, the original boys in town doing criminal investigations, there's now a few other players. And 
how would you say what's what's unique about the role of your criminal investigations within that broader law enforcement, national security and cybersecurity community? Well, th- thankfully, it is it is broad and there's dozens of agencies that are that are in this game. And uh, there's a lot of redundancy by design. Right. That's that kind of leads to the readiness we were talking about <laughs> earlier. We're unique, especially if you want to talk about your former outfit, the Bureau or, or, or our partners here in DHS over at Homeland Security Investigations. Very, very, very big organizations with really broad and expansive jurisdiction and do a, a great job. When it comes to our investigative mandate, we're much more narrowly focused. So try to find a, a not so clunky analogy. You know, if they're the big box stores, you know, we're, we're your local boutique. If they're the general practitioners, we're, we're more along the lines of, of, you know, surgeons or specialists when it comes to the violations that we work. That's the one most obvious difference. The other thing that's kind of unique about us is that when it comes to our integrated mission, our dual mission of protection and investigation, we actually approach them both in very much the same way. What I mean by that is we, we talk about how we go about, you know, choosing our cases and kind of establishing our priorities. We do that with the idea of endeavoring to safeguard and protect and secure our country's financial infrastructure and our payment systems and so on and so forth. We're not so worried about working particular groups who might be conducting a variety of different crimes, and we're not so hyper-focused on one particular violation of the other. We're there to kind of stand post, if you will, and stand watch over our country's uh, financial system. One of the things, post-September 11th, I know working with Director Mueller at the FBI, there was a focus on, because as you rightly say, there's so many different missions, but making sure there were very clear priorities and that resources flowed to those priorities. And the number one priority at the time, you know, based on threat, was protecting against another terrorist attack. But it would flow from there, you know, weapons of mass destruction, cyber. And certain there were certain crimes that the Bureau had traditionally worked, whether it was moving narcotics enforcement and making clear that DEA would be lead there, or this is one that I don't know that he fully succeeded on because it's so part of the FBI's identity is bank robberies. And he was wondering, you know, why, why should we be spending a lot of time at bank robberies when we're doing terrorist attacks <laughs> and try to move resources? But I imagine it's something you think about in your in your current post and something that's thought about uh, of the service over the years that you have a lot of these statutes that on paper you can investigate and enforce and how you how you decide where, where to prioritize and where to put your resources. No doubt. Our focus today now is expressly on, same as it was then, safeguarding our, our financial system, but we do have a particular a focus and interest on looking at these transnational organized crime groups that are actually conducting these sort of cyber crimes and offenses. But going back to uh, 2001, actually in the Patriot Act, it was mandated that the Secret Service was to expand uh, this network of a task force that we've had now for 25 plus years until very recently it was referred to as the ECTF, the Electronic Crimes Task Force. And we just recently blended it with another task force initiative we have. But that was specifically to support, you know, not only the task force, but any efforts we might have that would, you know, go to assisting agencies like the FBI and their broader defense of the homeland. Let's talk a little bit about that. The Electronic Crimes Task Force and for the for cyber folks, there really was the first federal, you were the first federal agency. And then that task force was really the first model on how to combat computer crime, which was something 
knew it there. We had someone on who is perhaps participated in some of it on an earlier show, Alex Stamos. Um, but it was, <laughs> it was, you know, using modems and whistle sounds essentially to, to hack. So were you ever involved with that when you were coming up on the on the line, or is that something you learn about more when you're in leadership? Yeah, so indirectly, yeah, I, I was, uh, as I mentioned, I was uh, in the New York field office. That's where I started in 95. That was the same year that the ECTF, the Electronic Crimes Task Force, was established. Uh, it was a group of not only Secret Service, but NYPD, FBI, the old U.S. Customs, which became part of HSI and CBP, and then a whole bunch of uh, private sector partners uh, back, you know, that, that were part of it back then. It's funny to think back, you know, a lot of their focus back then was on cell phone fraud. But when you talk about the physical cell phone, I, I always try to joke to my kids that, you know, they were bigger than a bread box. And I realized, oh, they don't know what a bread box is. <laughs> tell them it's bigger than an Xbox. You know, the, the cell phones were gigantic and they, it, was, it was to do with, you know, counterfeit SIM cards. And then by extension, they would have a, a pretty unique focus on counterfeit calling cards, you know, so that that's kind of where their focus was uh, for the first couple of years. They did fantastic work. New York was the first one shortly thereafter. You know, a number of them st started popping up, as I uh, noted earlier. After 2001, we were directed to expand that network. Today, we have 42 task forces nationwide and two international overseas. We're in the process of expanding that by another 16 or 17 to include some more of a footprint overseas as well. But of course, we don't do those giant cell phone cases anymore. We're, we're very much involved in the, the fight against cybercrime today in, in 2020 moving forward. And just to pause on the cell phone for a second. So that, do you think the counterfeiting was because you guys were used to investigating counterfeiting as as befit, you know, treasure in or no? No, yeah. I, sh I should mention before somebody listens to this and says, hey, Jimmy, forgot to mention count. We still do investigate counterfeit, counterfeit <laughs> currency. That's, that's part of our safeguarding of the financial system. But no, I think that was, that was just the... Uh, that was just the scheme du jour back then for people in and around that area who were counterfeiting SIM cards and, and things like that to kind of get these, uh, you know, these illegal cell phones on the street. So it was very much a, a hands-on type of thing back then. You'd go out and actually, you know, do buy busts and stuff like that on, on the streets of New York. And today, as you know, from your experience, a lot of this stuff is done remotely, virtually, uh, because these are not isolated to the streets of New York or any other city. These are, you know, the cyber crimes that work today are crimes without borders and occur worldwide. You talked a little bit that the, the name has changed for ECTF. So tell me a little bit about that. Why did the name change? What, is it, what does it signify? Even before the first ECTF 25 years ago, the Secret Service, probably since the late 70s and early 80s, when they first started getting involved with the fraud game, and that was credit card fraud and access device and bank fraud and stuff like that, we had a number of, well, probably too many to count, different types of fraud task forces that we stood up all over the place. And then they became more formalized in time, and we've had them until very, very recently. We'd have a, a financial crimes task force in the same offices where we had the electronic crimes task forces. And what we realized, especially in the last, let's say, seven, eight years, is that we were plowing down the same roads. In, in each of these uh, task forces, and it wasn't the kind of redundancy we needed, and we probably could create an efficiency by, you know, joining forces because you had the same partner agencies in any given city, along with the Secret Service on these task forces. So we decided to blend them together. The reality is that it'd be hard for us to sit there and, and name ten different crimes that exist out there, John, that are not digital in nature, at least you know directly or indirectly. And so there really wasn't much sense any longer in kind of having that 
a bright line between uh, a fraud task force vice a electronic crimes task force. And that's what led to this, the merger. Yeah, no, it's so true these days. In fact, that's been one of the questions I think different agencies have confronted, private sector. Should you call something cyber? You know, once things are digital and essentially every crime you're investigating is, is digital, how do you distinguish between what needs the specialized expertise and what's now just part of the regular training for an agent. Once you're hired, you go down to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center uh, in Georgia, and you do a couple of months training there. And in the Secret Service, we then bring it back to our training facility just outside of Washington, D.C., and you do probably another four or five months there. All said and done, you're doing eight months of what we'll call basic training before you, that's obviously very heavy on protection and very heavy on investigation. In the last five plus years or so, where it used to be a specialty, uh, every agent goes through a basic uh, course on cyber crimes. Whether he or she decides to make that a specialty once they get back to the field, everybody has really solid exposure and therefore has the ability to have somewhat of a basic understanding and a basic working knowledge. So when they're out there and they're exposed to this or they're supporting the people who are the specialists, they can sort of walk and chew gum as well. That's the basics. However, we were probably very much like with the Electronic Crimes Task Force, which has now turned into the Cyber Fraud Task Force. We were very early in uh, training our personnel from a, a specialty standpoint. We've probably had this program, as we call it XAP, the Electronic Crime Special Agent Program, for probably about 20 years now. And that is a, uh, a deep dive, full on immersion. And that's where somebody who is a, an agent with the service decides that uh, they want to be a cyber agent. And they go through many, many months of school and they make that sort of their career track, so to speak. In addition to that, we've offered you know, a whole bunch of training in digital forensics, cryptocurrency. We offer even our basic agent students what we call nitro training, network intrusion type training. So that's kind of how we build the entire workforce. But it's like anything else. We're not looking to make everybody a specialist in this area, but we want to make sure everybody's able to support the cyber investigative mission. And how, how do you distinguish? So it's been in the news lately about uh, the recent departure of the director of another part of the Department of Homeland Security with cyber in the name, uh, the, the Cyber Inf Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. How, how do you, what's their role versus the Secret Service's role at, at Homeland, and how do you work together around cyber threats? Chris Krebs did a great job. Uh, you know, I think our agents are not only the department, but the country is uh, safer and more capable because of him. But uh, CISA is a great partner. Uh, that's an agency who's really come a long way in the last, you know, five to seven years. And they have a pretty broad mission mandate as well. But when it comes to cyber, their focus is on not only education and awareness of the general public and all the various sectors that are out there, but ensuring uh, readiness and resiliency. So they're not by nature an investigative outfit, uh, but we do work very closely with them and they are a big part of our cyber fraud task forces uh, around the country and around the world. And, you know, is there some tension there? Just when you're trying to get private sector partners, I, I've noticed, you know, one of the advantages of CISA, and it's gotten a lot of attention lately, right? It got a new name, it got new funding. So I'm curious about how that affects morale on your end for, for folks doing the, uh, the investigative side on cyber. But they also, as part of their branding, they've distinguished themselves as we have no enforcement mission, so we're really just here to help. And that's that makes us different than you know, FBI or Secret Service and certainly different than 
than a regulator. Um, you know, at the same time, though, there's a little bit of I don't know, tension, competition. I get it with, with clients. You know, where do I go when I have an incident? And each each agency is making its own argument as to why you should go to them first. And how does that play out for you as director? And and how do you try to navigate that and keep morale high? I, I could appreciate that. And again, never having been uh, in the private sector or you know run a, a corporation myself, I did in my old job work uh, for an agency that was heavily involved with regulatory enforcement. So I get the reticence of uh, a business owner or a COO, CISO, whoever, who doesn't want to come forward and just wants to consult with an agency like CISA. That makes all the sense in the world. But I'll say this, the first time that you're talking to a Secret Service cyber agent or an FBI cyber agent cannot be and must not be after you've been a victim of cyber crimes. You know, those partnerships have to start early on. Uh, we go out of our, our way to kind of engage and, and conduct all sorts of outreach to make sure that we, you know, have those lines of communication in place. And while I recognize there might be, you know, a fear that, ah, this may result in some sort of regulatory, you know, gum up, I get that. But I think the alternative is far worse and, and the risk is far worse. Uh, so our message to private sector and all the various sectors is please come and talk to, whether it's CISA, the FBI, Secret Service, talk to us now, make sure we're all on the same sheet of music so that when an incident does occur, we can respond and address it together. You know, how, how do you incentivize that, by the way, for your, for your folks? So, you know, you, you train people to throw themselves literally in front of a bullet for protect T and then on the investigation side to aggressively look for criminals and ultimately bring them to justice, bring cases. But here it's a mission of outreach or or partnership, it's it's a less exciting metric, I guess. And in, in protection, you certainly know when you something went wrong. But I think in a criminal investigation too, at the end of the day, you bring a prosecution. But here, you're you're trying to reach out to people and stop something from happening, so they'll never they'll never see it. How do you how do you incentivize it? Measure it? Well, incentivize it internally. I, I think uh, all of our, uh, our our folks, whether it's mission support, your analysts, your agents, uh, they get that the solution here is not. Uh, you know, simply putting handcuffs on people and seizing fun and returning it to victims. The solution here is education and awareness. So I don't think our ho- our folks need a whole lot of motivation or reminder as to why that matters so much. As far as partnerships, you know, we are a relatively small organization. We're about 7,700 strong. That's about uh, 1,600 of those are uniform division uh, police officers, great outfit. About a third of those are uh, mission support people, uh, a whole broad, vast array of different kinds of job series. And then the remainder are your special agents. So here's the reality of, of life in the Secret Service. We are by design a small outfit, and we are by design highly reliant on the partnerships we have with both the public and private sectors. Quite literally, on the protective side of the house, the wheels do not roll when we get to town, regardless of who the protectee is, unless we have the support of our local, state, county, and so on there. And figuratively, on the investigative side, the same remains true. So if we don't have an ongoing dialogue with those folks that are in the private sector, uh, we can respond to suspicious activities that we see after the fact, 
but there's really no way for us to get out ahead of it unless we kind of are linked with them early on. And what, you know, you're talking about threats today. So you go out, you speak to a potential victim ahead of time. What are you telling them about uh, threats? What are the top cybercrime threats you're seeing today? Trends we're seeing nowadays, they've, they've been around for a while, but they're kind of evolving in and of themselves. So probably the more prevalent thing we see quite often is ransomware, of course. I think a lot of your listeners will be familiar with ransomware. I think the best way to define it is it's, it's quite simply where systems and information are taken hostage and they're taken hostage for the purpose of profit. Um, so that's one thing where, you know, really that early communication with potential victims or our partners in the private sector, that's where it's critical because that's where we want to respond right away. Other things we're seeing quite a bit of, especially in the last couple of years, are these business email compromises, which are you know, fraud schemes that target businesses that work with other businesses, other parties. And these transnational groups get in there and they mimic the day-to-day communications that go on within email systems and so on and so forth. And then they send the message either internally or externally to initiate something like a wire transfer. Uh, and that's how they, they affect these, these, these business email compromise schemes. Obviously, phishing has been around for a long time. There's none of us out there that's not, you know, been the recipient of a phishing type message. But again, that goes from, you know, annoying spam in your junk email box all the way to really intricate and and targeted activity. And then we're still working a lot of card skimming. Uh, This is a certain kind of credit card theft where, you know, these transnational groups or these bad actors place a device on different gas pumps, what have you, in order to steal credit card information. And then they you know, they exploit that. All these changes in the credit card and it's still, the skimming scheme is still working? Exponentially better than it ever was even a couple of years ago. But yeah, there's certain vulnerabilities there that these these folks that are committing these acts are, are they are intelligent and they are, you know, they learn from their own mistakes just like we do. You can see when you walk through the different types of threats that you're facing, they do really all revolve around fraud in a way and why the, the Cyber Fraud Task Force makes sense. In addition to that change, you also created and, and launched a new outside advisory board, which of which I am a member. What was the thinking behind uh, behind that? So, yeah, it's the uh, Cyber Investigative Advisory Board. It's the first of its kind, as far as we know, first of its kind for the Secret Service anyway. Uh, it's comprised of uh, 16 different senior executives and experts from the various sectors, industry, government, academia, and looking for this group to kind of work with us to provide, you know, strategic counsel and kind of be a good idea machine for us for when it comes time to figure out what's the best way to go about combating cybercrime and cyber fraud. It's really, you know, it's early days for sure, as you know, John, but really, really excited about the prospect. Um, You know, it's been a long time coming that we've wanted to have a trusted sounding board like this to make sure that we're all on the same sheet of music. We're all rowing in the same direction. You know, a, I think to, to, to not have something like this, it's almost like hiring contractors to come to your house. And the contractors come week after week, and every week they keep painting the shutters over and over again. But they never talk to you, so they don't know that the reason you call them and that you really need them is because there's electrical problems. And that's kind of what was missing there. So we're trying to exploit the fact that, you know, we have these contacts that we've established for many, many years and kind of, you know, leverage them to make sure that we're all, as I say, moving in the right direction in the future. Two big changes, Cyber Fraud Task Force, creating this new advisory board. Is there something else? Are these the big changes that we should expect in the near future? Or is uh, some more to come? As I say, we, we, we kind of feel there's a symbiotic nature from when it comes to our integrated mission of protection and investigation. And sort of along the same uh, lines as the advisory board, 
we noticed that there was a bit of a gap. We have 40 plus ECTFs and until recently even more financial fraud task forces out there, people doing really, really great work amongst their partners. And we realized, uh, but they were doing them not so much in the silo, but they were doing their level best to cut leads to various offices to make sure they can get info back. But what happened is you'd have pop-ups of cases or investigations that were tangential, and maybe the investigating team wasn't really fully aware of that. So on the protection side of the house, the way we would cover down on that is we would establish a command post. And a command post would be the one that has its finger on the pulse of all things operational. They would be the one to uh, sort of direct uh, all coordination and communication to make sure that everybody was, you know, tracking and clear on, you know, what the situation was. So we decided to develop the same sort of operation on the investigative side. Uh, we base it here at a headquarters. It's, uh, we refer to it as the Global Investigations Operations Center or the GIOC. It's there to provide investigative and analytical support across all field offices and all these task forces. And what it's done already in the short time it's been up in the last year or so is it's really helped to establish and identify and call out those links that exist. And more importantly, it's covered down on gaps that might exist. Beyond that, it is also another avenue to uh, you know, conduct outreach to our various partners with regard to what's current, what are the, what are the warning signs we're seeing ourselves here. You know, we're seeing the bridges out, figuratively speaking. And we we want to make sure you know about it. Uh, so it's it's been a real real boon for us. Uh, really, productivity is is through the roof as a result of it. And is the Jayak a place you, you've talked about partnerships, including the task force? You the original ECTF dating back to 1995 had the private sector. How does the private sector plug in? to the JIAC, or is that something more internal and they should they still go through the field office? The, there's constant communication, but the idea is just that, whether it's through fellowships or secondments, what have you, we have folks like FBI agents and stuff already assigned to our JIAC. The idea would be to bring in some of our, you know, our key private sector partners to kind of be in there and uh, assist us real time as well. We're at a, an election transition. There's been some discussion in the current administration about another move for for Secret Service. In fact, you know, linking back to what, something you've touched on already about the, the protection of the financial sector, the current Treasury sec Secretary has said that cybercrime is one of the greatest threats facing the financial sector. Uh, well, let me just pause for a sec. Do you agree with that? Do I agree with the statement? Absolutely. And so, you know, one, you can see one motive towards moving the Secret Service back to where it came from. So back to the Treasury Department might be around that idea of a financial risk. I've heard other arguments, pro and con, but from your perspective, how should we be thinking about it? What are the advantages, disadvantages of a, of a move? When we first moved over in 2003 uh, to DHS, along with Coast Guard and a number of other outfits, I think expectation and hopes were very high. Speaking as somebody who's been here in, in the Secret Service the whole time as, as, a, as a career person and a working agent, those expectations were never really met. I don't think it's the fault of any administration. I think, you know, what happened is a bit of a square peg round hole for the Secret Service and DHS to a certain extent. That's one That's one way to look at it. The bigger way to look at it is the DHS mission set is so expansive. Uh, it is so broad. And it is primarily, uh, as, as it should be, focused on border security and immigration and transportation security, and then a whole host of other different infrastructure-related items. And then there's our mission, which I've, we've already discussed, right? Our mission is clear. It's protection and investigation. 
So, I, you know, it's, it was very, very tough to kind of compete for consideration and for budgetary and for staffing support. And that has been probably since the advent. Uh, so as a result, this question of whether or not the Secret Service should remain in DHS, go back to Treasury, go to some other department or even be a standalone or, uh, organization, that's come up a lot over the last 17 years. As a matter of fact, in 2011, uh, there was actually draft legislation out of the Senate Judiciary to do just that and it had tacit approval of the Obama administration. For one reason or another, it didn't happen. And then, as you're aware, there was a uh, protective mission panel that was uh, established after a couple of uh, very near mission failures here in the Secret Service, one in which an individual jumped the White House fence and got, onto the, uh, got into the, the state floor. That mission panel was comprised of folks like yourself, folks with senior government and private sector and uh, leadership experience, and they made a whole number of recommendations, the most of which we've been able to implement. Prime amongst their recommendations was that the Secret Service might benefit, at least in the short term, from having an outside director. That is somebody who didn't grow up Secret Service, so to speak. And we did that. We had a gentleman here, uh, General Tex Alice, who was here for a couple of years. He's a career Marine, spent uh, some time over in DHS, and then came and served with us from, uh, I think, 2017 to 2019. Uh, I hope it was a great experience for him because it was a great experience for us. He opened our eyes to a lot of different things. When he decided to go back over to DHS, he had a checkout, if you will, with the administration, and he shared his observations and provided some recommendations. And prime amongst his recommendations is that the Secret Service should go back to Treasury. And his reasoning at the time was a little bit of what I just mentioned. We're never going to get the support we need there. But more importantly, it was mission fit. Because we are about protection, protection of people, places, and things on a protective side, and protection of our nation's financial infrastructure on the investigative side. And that is precisely what the Treasury Department's mission is as well. So what happened as a result of that, I found myself in this position not long after, uh, was asked to take a look at it. Definitely thought, since the question had lingered for 17 years, that it should be examined. The Office of Management and Budget conducted a feasibility study. We did a pretty good level of engagement on the Hill. As you said, a lot of people were you know, for it. A lot of people raised the yellow flag, a little bit of concern about what might happen to the department. What I am happy to report in all that engagement, not one person, not one staffer, not one member of Congress, not one senator, nobody looked to politicize the question. So that was uh, very much refreshing. Don't know where it goes, John, uh, if, if it happens, that's great. If it doesn't and we're in DHS, that's great as well. I think uh, just by engaging in the conversation, maybe we've looked to uh, ameliorate that, that concern that we don't get the due consideration or we're not heard uh, because we certainly have been heard uh, quite a bit over the last year or so. So we'll see where it goes. But, you know, and, until yeah. we're moved anywhere, we're, we're proud to be a component within DHS. More controversial, I think people have also talked about splitting, keeping the protective arm at Homeland Security and moving the investigative branch back to Treasury. Uh, to be blunt, I think that's a really bad idea. We really feel that regardless of your job description here, being exposed to this dual mission makes you stronger in each. You know, the the more investigative experience you have, uh, the better protective agents you, you become. The more experience you have, you become a better investigator when you go back to doing that primarily. I also think that would be very, very tough to do from a recruiting and hiring and retention standpoint. The, if you're going to do nothing but protection full time, that 
is really, really tough on an individual. It's tough on a family. It's tough on an agency. So it's hard for me to imagine that happening. You know, uh, again, the reason that we've been carrying out this dual mission for 120 plus years is because we've established that not only can we do it, but we do it well, and it's critical to our national security. Yeah, yeah, and actually talking through your story and, and career, I think is a good example of one that would have been negatively impacted if all you did was protection. Curious a little bit, because you, you talked about having a director and the, the tradition at Secret Service has been to have agents as directors, right? People have worked their way up. At the FBI, that has happened, but the tradition is the opposite. Is uh, It's usually been a some with prosecutorial experience and then other government experience, but they have not been career agents. It sounds like you had a good experience during the one time someone was brought in from outside. What do you think? Should it be, should there be a rotation? Should there be a default in one direction or other? As a, and I assume you think the current director is doing a pretty good job. Certainly not opposed to it. And if anybody had any, any, you know, was leery of the idea before General Alice, Director Alice, as we call him now, actually he's under Secretary of Management Alice now, back over at THS. But if anybody was leery or, you know, had doubts before he spent time with us, I mean, he's definitely neutralized those. He's, he, his time and his tenure here was not only great while he's here, but a lot of these great things we've talked about in our conversation today are as a result of his leadership. So there's definitely opportunity for it. I will say this, though, and, and I think you know this, but for the benefit of your listeners, Secret Service, just under 8,000 people, small outfit. We are a law enforcement agency, but as you know from your experience, the Bureau and DOJ, we're sort of unlike other law enforcement agencies. And we look and operate a lot like the military, but we're not part of the armed services. And by the you know, virtue of the fact of being an agency, we're part of a bureaucracy. Uh, but what's unique about us is we're one of the very, very few organizations and agencies within the federal government that has zero political appointees, regardless of whether they come from the outside or they grow up here, so to speak. That is by design uh, because we are apolitical and agnostic when it comes to political party or ideology or platform. You know, we're all about defense and the protection of the Constitution and ensuring its continuity and all, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I don't know that you could really kind of prescribe a rotation, but I will say this, all those things I just mentioned make us a little bit of a weird little agency. So the learning curve for somebody coming in from the outside is going to be sharp and, and, and very, very fast. So I would say if somebody came in from the outside, the one thing we don't have that uh, FBI directors do is I think they have like a tenure of, you correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a 10 years when they're appointed. That's right. Yep. So we, we don't have it here. Most of us have been career employees, which means we're not politically appointed. You can remove us in the position and go have us peel potatoes, but we would effectively still be here. Um, so I think if you got somebody coming from the outside, we'd want to give them the support they need and the time they need to get up to speed because, you know, we're, 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 we're a little bit different than other agencies and we're, we're happy to be different, but that's, that, that creates a bit of a challenge for somebody coming in to kind of lead an organization like this. You raise uh, an important point and it's one that's especially important in these divided and increasingly partisan times, but, but the importance of having a culture at, at an agency where really it's, I don't even know if it's uh, I think it's the last thing on people's minds, right? 
the politics at all. They're, they're, they're focused on the, on the mission. You know, we all come from different uh, backgrounds and experiences, and we might come from families that have, you know, that are big into politics, or they have people that might be politicians themselves. But when, whenever we get new folks, whether it's new officers, new agents, new, new uh, administrative or professional folks, I'll sit down along with our deputy director, whom I think you know, Leon Newsom, and our chief operating officer, George Mulligan, and we sit and we kind of talk about the service and our experience here. And the one thing we'll tell them very, very plainly is, you know, you're entitled to have your own political opinion, but you should know that none of us care and none of us want to hear it. It really has no bearing on what we do here day to day. It's just not only an obstruction, it's, it's a distraction. So I could tell you my nearly 26 years, uh, can't even recall a time where there's been an ongoing political conversation in any venue, whether protective side, on the investigative side, traveling here domestically around the world. It's just not something we do. I mean, it's been great having you here today. And let me end with just what, what's your pitch to our listeners who are thinking about whether or not they want to join the, uh, the Secret Service? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, we are, as I said, we're just about just under 8,000 people. That's probably twice the size it was maybe 25 years ago. Uh, but we are on the move and we have a, a strategic hiring plan where we're looking to hire uh, to get to about 10,000 people. That's, again, not just agents. That's the uniform division. That's all of our mission support people. So we are in the middle of, a, even with COVID, big hiring uh, frenzy. Here's the thing about the Secret Service. If you are someone who wants to be part of something bigger than yourself, and if you're someone who derives a psychological salary and being of service to others. And at the same time, getting to do, do some pretty cool and interesting things along the way, I would ask you to give us a look. Uh, we are different from others. It is demanding. It's not going to only require uh, the investment of you, but the people that love you and that are part of your lives. It's, uh, it is very much a family affair here when it comes to the travel and the schedule that, that, that people here in the Secret Service endure. But I'll tell you this, John, I guess it's like a lot of other things in life. Uh, for me, there's no better job out there. Uh, this job is fantastic, but it's because despite the ups and downs, I want to be here and I choose to be here. I imagine that if you did not want to be here, this is a pretty tough place to be. But it's funny, you know, people that come, our, our attrition rate, as demanding as it is, is relatively low. I think uh, this place kind of gets in, in people's bones and their DNA once they're part of the service. When I was in government, loved loved the jobs and people would sometimes thank you, uh, you know, which which I'm tempted to do with you for the for the service you put in over, over the years. But the truth is, sounds like similarly for you, there's there's no thank you. It was great. So I wanted to thank the other way around. Thank you, taxpayer, because <laughs> you let me do the person that we should be thanking is your wife. That's right. <laughs> for the 265 days. But again, it's been great, great having you uh, here today. And, and thank you for the work that you do. I hope you've enjoyed John Carlin's interview with James Murray for the Cyberspace Podcast. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Cyberspace and other exclusive content, including the Cafe Insider Podcast I co-host with Ann Milgram, head to cafe.com slash insider and use the promo code CARLIN. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider and the promo code is C-A-R-L-I-N. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work. Cyberspace is presented by CAFE. Your host is John Carlin. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The senior audio producer is David Tattashore. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, Matt Wiener, Sam Oserstaden, David Kurlander, Noah Azulai, 
Jake Kaplan, Calvin Lord, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Malley. The music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Today's episode was brought to you in collaboration with Brooklyn Law School's Blip Clinic. Special thanks to Amanda Kadish, Isabella Augusto, Jacqueline Green, and Mari Rifkin. <laughs>